You are now tuned in to Believe. Do you believe? Thank you for tapping into some untapped cake. I am one of your hosts, RJ Zimmerman, here with my good friend, Monte Ball. How you doing, big guy? Good. I'm excited, man. And, you know, enough about me. Enough about you. We got ourselves a very special guest today, and we're excited for this episode. We really are. We have the pleasure to be joined by Ms. Gretchen Herman. Thank you for joining us. Woo! Yeah, the professional applause track there. (laughs) How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. A little sunburn. Was hot out yesterday. It was very warm yesterday and humid. Yes, (laughs) indeed it was. I think uh, before we hop into things, I guess let's give a little back, little backstory here on um, how we met each other. Um, So Gretchen was your what your name is, of course, but. You know, I, I've been referring to you as Gigi, of course, and a lot of your friends and family as well. And uh, obviously, I had the um, wonderful opportunity of getting to know you to meet you through my good friend, Christopher Borland, Chris Borland, who we had on the episode or on the on the podcast a while back. Um, and yeah, I think it's just uh, awesome to have you on. And, and, and so we are here today to listen. We're here to listen, allow for you to share your story. Um, there were some wonderful things that you shared pre-show um, here and that we're looking forward to getting into. really are. And so I guess our, my main question to you to get this bad boy going is um, you've obviously been checking out our podcast here at Untapped Keg and uh, you reached out to hop on and to share some very, very personal stuff. Um, you've been through you've been through a lot. And so um I'm 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 ready for you just to hop into it wherever you want to start wherever you want to begin, we'll okay. we'll, we'll we'll go from there. So I, <laughs> I, I I didn't have a question there, so my apologies. <laughs> Specifically, where do I want to begin? Gosh, yeah. um, I think obviously the uh, theme of your podcast is recovery and mental health, and um, I think growing up, I was ninth of ten kids. And so there was total chaos in our house. And um, ninth of 10 is kind of a special spot because you are kind of overlooked. But I got to see everything that was going on in our life. So my mom and dad were just wonderful people, very involved in the community, um, fun people. And so the life that my older siblings had and what I had was different. So it was interesting as an adult to come back together and talk about that. Um, my mom, when I was young, drank, I'll call it drinking. And maybe that's where my word with alcoholism um, has a hard, I have a hard time with that word, which I know you guys have talked about several times. If I said to my older siblings who are now gone, that my mom was an alcoholic, they would deny it. But they didn't grow up with that same mom. You know, by the time you're the ninth kid, and I had my two older brothers gone to the Vietnam War, and I think that's when my mom probably started drinking quietly in the afternoon, you know, uh, 
wine and more wine and more wine. And I had to grow up seeing that. And when other people didn't realize it, outside of our house, in the community, and my, like I said, my older siblings didn't. But we grew up in a house that alcohol was pretty much part of every story. So um, there are photos of family get-togethers for someone's first birthday, and everybody's bringing in a 12-pack. So they have their child in their arm in a 12-pack, you know, because this is what we did for someone's first birthday or first communion or whatever. We drank. Mm -hmm. So I I grew up thinking that was pretty normal. And um, I should say also, I want to – I'm going to – tell stories maybe of some people like my mom that impacted me. But I want to say right off the bat that I do not want to implicate anybody else in any of my journey, if that makes sense. Family and friends that drink, I don't care. That's their life. That's their thing. If anybody is struggling, I would love that they could reach out to me. But I don't want to be in judgment of other people's lifestyle or um what is acceptable for them so i just want to say that because i don't want people thinking i'm judging them i agree that's that's something that's important that we try to put out there too like you know if you can control it that's awesome that's good but we couldn't so that's why we are where we are why we talk about what we talk about and trying to normalize that it's okay to admit that you can't couldn't control it so yeah and i mean when I, I, my first journey with alcohol, I think I was 13 years old. And I mean, that's where the journey started. And I was sleeping at a friend's house and her mom was upstairs and we said, oh, let's try some of that magic (laughs) stuff over there. Sounds similar to mine. So, you know, we find the glass and like a juice glass and we pour some in there. We were probably... 60 pounds at the time, eighth grade, we were tiny. And, um, you know, a juice glass full of whatever. And then so they don't notice it, we take a juice glass of whatever else. So that all the bottles are getting just diminished a little bit, which is the secret that we ended up doing through high school. When you would visit someone's basement bar and then put a little water in there to water down their whatever you were sneaking. So, um, yeah, 13. and. We were having so much fun. We were just running around in circles around her house, yelling and laughing and spitting on each other. It was ridiculous. And her mom came down and was like, what is into you? Because here we were, good girls. You know, we were not troublemakers. We were not rowdy or wild. We were cheerleaders. We were good girls. And I remember her then starting to cry and and yelling at her mom, why did you get a divorce? Why did no one's parents are divorced? And I saw her let go of something which she had never let go of before. So I realized, gosh, you know, alcohol opens you up for all the stuff that you stuffed in. And um, I, I just learned that it, it allowed you to say the things that you couldn't say when you weren't drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dangerously. And so when I was 16, I was a regular drinker already. And um, 
one night, actually, I went to a Mary Kay party and I came home and every single night of my life, I would go in my mom's room and say, good night, God bless you, I love you, and give her a kiss. And that night I didn't because I had been at this Mary Kay party and they offered me a little um, punch, alcohol punch. So I came home a little buzzed when I was 16 and I did not kiss my mom goodnight that night and say, God bless you, I love you. And I went to bed and a few hours later, my dad came running in my room and said, go to that emergency stuff on your mom. And I was like, what? You know, go to that emergency stuff on your mom. And I didn't know what he was saying. He was frantic. So I ran in her bedroom and she was gone. So we assumed she had a heart attack. And um, well, I just told him to go um, call the ambulance and I started doing CPR on her. So, you know, here I was two weeks after my 16th birthday, standing in my mom's room, giving her CPR in my red and white striped footy pajamas. I'll never forget the feeling of, um, you know, the sound of this gurgling and um, she wasn't really coming to. And then I could hear the neighbor's dogs howling. Uh, they heard the ambulance before I did, but I knew then that the siren would be coming into my neighborhood. And they came in and pushed me aside and knocked down lamps, bringing them in and, and started, you know, the emergency procedure on her, the recovery. And um, then took her out. My dad climbed in the ambulance and they went off down a foggy road. And there I was standing in my red and white footy pajamas in the middle of that, you know, street in front of my house thinking, now what? And um, so I had to go in the house and call all my brothers and sisters and um, let them know mom had a heart attack. And I didn't know if she was alive. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't know anything. You know, it was just that kind of let's wait and see. And mm-hmm. um, people gathered at our house. You know, we had certain people, brothers and sisters, running to others and throwing stones at windows all coming together. And I don't know if we drank that night, but we probably did, not even knowing what was really going on with my mom. And um, three days later, she died. And uh, I remember going to the funeral, and um, people would say, good girl, you hardly cried. And I learned really quickly that good girl meant you stuff your emotions. So the night at the funeral and my brother gave, you know, bought me some cocktails and my whole family, that's what we did. And we got through it and I went back to school and just went about that life. I didn't realize till so many years later how it impacted my friends at that age and that I was doing the same thing because I never knew that I would cry when I drank when I was young. So years later, after I quit and my friends would say, God, you were so annoying. You would just cry. Well, I didn't even know that. I didn't even remember that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then I went off to, I mean, then we just partied every weekend, you know, like I said, good kids. The best of the best kids, the most talented, the brightest. And I'm sure you guys know that you guys are both um, talented and we just did things that I don't know if people were just overlooking. Like, did our parents really know we were doing these things or, um, I don't know. 
I don't know. But then when I was 19, I remembered sitting on the front porch of my house one night waiting for someone to pick me up. Again, by then I had already learned the pre-game ritual of having a cocktail or two before I left my house. The drinking age was 18 then, so I could go by my own. But I realized that um, have a drink or two before you go out, liquid courage, and it made everything smooth and cool. So now I know that's anxiety of going to an event and stepping in someplace you don't necessarily want to be. It'll loosen you up. And I remember sitting on my front porch that night and somebody drove up to pick me up to go out and I was embarrassed. I was eating potato chips, which when you're a a thin college girl, you just don't eat chips. And I took the plate of chips and threw them in my front bushes. Like, so the next day when I came home, the next day at 19 years old, I didn't come home at that night. I found somewhere to go. And I came in the next morning and there were, there was my plate in my parents' front bushes from the night before. And I thought, you know, I just don't think that's probably normal or good. So then I became aware of the, um, the warning signs of alcoholism, which I ended up printing out today because I have a feeling that a lot of people don't know what those things are. Mm. Um, and they're not the same, obviously, for everyone, but I got that from Hazelden, so Hazelden obviously knows right. um, what yeah, those well, things are. I'd like to hear some of those. Yeah, some of the, some of the, you said some early signs, some. Yeah, so drinking, drinking more than planned or intended. So how many times would you go out and think, okay, I'm not going to go, I'm going to go to that work party this weekend and not dance on the freaking bar. Or I'm not going to flirt with people that I wouldn't normally flirt with. So those right, kind of things. $20 and that's all I'm going to spend. <laughs> Next right. time you know you're dropping 100 150 Three drinks tonight, no more. Yeah. I'm not going to go to that wedding and embarrass my family. Yeah. So, mm. so that is a warning sign of alcoholism. Failing to fulfill obligations at school, work, or home, and making drinking a priority despite responsibilities, leading to missed school or work. So, you know, when I was young, I I thought two weeks um, sick time meant you had 14 days off of work for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It didn't dawn on me that meant you were really sick and not just hungover. Well, they call it Um, brown, brown bottle flu for a reason. Yeah, I never heard of that. I never heard that either. <laughs> well, now you know what to say when you call it from work. <laughs> Brown bottle flu. Yeah, I had that a lot. Um, continuing to use despite negative impacts on relationships, financial situation, or health. And um, I have to say, my husband I knew was a wonderful person to marry because he drank with me. I only saw him drink three times, or drunk, three times ever. He drank in a very healthy way, which I thought was great for my kids to see. Um, So he would have a drink, or maybe two, on a very regular occasion. You know, at the end of the day after work, he would have a beer, and that would be it, which I could never do. Um, And he didn't mind. I mean, I, I wasn't an angry kind of drunk person, and I wasn't breaking things and yelling or being a bitch. I just got wild and fun. So a lot of my friends, 
I think had fun with me and were kind of sad when I quit drinking because I would be the one I've, I've kind of felt responsible for getting people all jazzed up mm-hmm. and they may, they may look back at it differently and say I was pathetic and it wasn't funny, but I felt that responsibility to be the one to get people rolling. So, um, the relationships. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just I was, my my apologies for butting in, but we we've shared that a lot where we we've talked about uh, it seems like in these in your groups of of social drinking, um, there's roles, people everyone has a role it seems like and and RJ and I's role in our groups, um, our separate groups were the in a sense I guess the class count the class clown uh, yeah. The, yeah yeah the, yeah the one who would. Dress up and and again, I, I don't want to speak for you, RJ. Of course, but I think that's what you shared as well. Your frog costume, maybe. It was that you go? It, it was my responsibility to have the playlist, to have the dance moves, uh, all of the above. I, it was my 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 job. So again, I just wanted to chime in and share that. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I yeah. Do. So it wasn't necessarily that relationships, but uh, how it affected my relationships was I did not want to necessarily be around people that weren't drinking because I felt they would be judging me. I don't know if they were or not. And so now I kind of have that awkward feeling where I don't want my friends to think or my family to think I'm judging them. But I know I would feel uncomfortable around. I had a um, sister and her husband that were in recovery and I always felt like I had to be on my best behavior when I was around them since they did not drink and I did. So um, that might have been awkward for them, and I know it was for me, but uh, drinking didn't affect my financial situation. But um, my health, I don't think at that point. I think now, honestly, my vocabulary has shrunk in the past few years, and I'm wondering if I didn't kill too many brain cells. I really, really seriously wonder about that. So, um, using in situations that could be physically hazardous, like drinking and driving. And I hate to say I did get a ticket for that when I was young. I think everybody who is sober from alcohol, most definitely a few times have driven drunk. Um, and we're most definitely not proud of it, but I think it by us stepping away from the bottle, that alone is telling folks that that behavior is unacceptable. Yeah. You know, I tried to reach out. I was 24 and I I had just broken up with somebody I was engaged to and we thought it would be super fun to go down to Milwaukee um, to go out drinking after we drank all day long, starting from noon. And so, you know, at eight o'clock at night, we left from Milwaukee in a car where the brakes didn't work. It was a friend's car who said, don't take it out of town, thinking we might go to Appleton, which was a half an hour away. He never assumed we would be driving to Milwaukee with a car that had no lights on the dashboard. So I really didn't know how fast I was driving. So, you know, this friend had matches and she would light on the dashboard to see how fast we were going. And then when the matches, I'm serious, this is so pathetic. We got to laugh at that, though. I mean, yeah, 
<laughs> think think about how our brains work that like this is actually going to be fun like not only are, is it a good idea to do but we're going to have fun while we do this imagine talking about it the next morning like we don't think about the dangers or anything like that <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not laughing at you but this story is it is humorous it is I mean and that's the thing and so when I got pulled over, it was because I was going 85 in a 55. Oh, boy. Because at that point, I'm thinking, well, we ran out of matches. I don't know how fast we're going, so just speed up and get there. Right? That's the logic. <laughs> With no brakes. <laughs> no. Yeah. And so, you know, I get pulled over, and I'm thinking I'm going to talk my way out of it. Because when you're that age, I had already been pulled over one night when I was younger. And that cop just said, ha, ha, you know, this is on the way out to the bar. So we had already been drinking that night, too. Mm-hmm. And um, again, good girls. You know, that cop just laughed and said, I think your friend should be driving. And let us go, you know, from mm-hmm. speeding while I was drinking. So I thought I was going to get away with it that night, too. And um, I was a gymnast. So I had good balance. I, I passed, you know, many of the sobriety tests. But I was being a smart ass, and he just didn't think it was funny. And um, I I didn't know if I was going to tell this part of the story. But I was out of my county, and so I needed to have the money or someone sober to pick me up. And at that hour of the night, on a Friday night, was it Saturday night? Saturday night? Yeah. Yeah, Saturday night. I didn't know anybody that would be sober that would have... $600 $600 to get me out of jail. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yes, I went to jail. All right. You know, and um, even there, I was a smart ass. I'm saying, you know, are we going to have coffee and donuts in the morning? Sunday morning, we have coffee and donuts in my family. And they're just looking at me like, you're pathetic. You know, take off your jewelry. I'm like, this is my mom's engagement ring. I'm not taking it off. And they're like, <laughs> Put your ring in this box. So each step of the way, it got sadder and sadder. And um, yeah, my poor friend, she had to find her way home. Again, call someone sober on a Saturday night. In our circle, it just wasn't possible. I hear you. So the next morning I wake up and I'm in jail. And um, in my cute little clothes, I would have been out dancing at this nightclub in Milwaukee, but I wasn't, but my belt's gone and my scarf's gone and my jewelry's gone. And I am um, sitting there waiting for my brother, who was the only person I knew that would have the money cash to pick me up. And now I think back on it, I probably didn't need cash. I probably was too drunk to really understand what they were telling me, but I knew I had to have someone sober pick me up and that wasn't going to happen that night. Right. <clears throat> so then it turns out there's a big snowstorm that night and so i sat in jail wow. another night. and it was winter oh my it's winter. so i'm watching tv they let me out at night to go down the hallway and i'm watching tv with criminals you know so this big lady really harsh looking and saying to me what are you in for <laughs> and I'm freezing cold because I'm just in my little clothes and I had toilet paper wrapped around my arms, you know, to um, stay warm. And uh, so the next 
morning, Monday morning. Oh, then, yeah, while I'm watching TV, I see that there is a bad snowstorm. They're saying, do not go out. Do not drive on the highway. And I picture my brother's coming with this money to, you know, he was going to come this morning. He's going to be here today. He's going to be in a snowstorm. I felt so bad making him be out in a snowstorm. He didn't come that night. So I spent another night there. And then I had to go to court Monday morning dressed in those same clothes. And the judge said, you know, so what do you plead? And I'm like, what are my options? I had no idea. But he understood. He looked at me and he understood that I was just like any of us. A good person that went down the wrong path and got further and further down this path without understanding what was happening or when I was really in danger. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, and that wasn't my rock bottom, sadly. So, um, yeah, Gretchen, I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to jump in here real quick and I, I, I wanted to talk about, so RJ and I had the opportunity to interview, um, someone who really spoke on, you know, how traumatic it is, um, losing people who you love. And how that can be destabilizing, of course, and how that can bring on, um, you know, allow for you to become more susceptible to maybe more anxiety, et cetera. Um, and, and for you, listening to what you shared pre-show about the family members who you have lost, people close to you who you have lost. Um, and again, we, 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 we are sorry for that. But you also show so much resilience, um, you know, on your Facebook, obviously talking with you now. So I would love for you to share with us, please share with us, you know, how, how do you keep it? How do you keep it together with, with, with losing so many close people? Uh, Well, I, like I told that long story of losing my mom, which kind of kicked me off into all of this when I was 20, well, 18, on my 18th birthday, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, um, terminal And my brother already had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and was in um, experimental treatment at UW for years. We thought he was going to die from, gosh, I remember being in ninth grade and crying to my friends, my brother's going to die. Nobody understood that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I drank through those. So I lost my mom, my dad, my brother, then my grandpa, all by time 25. That was my last grandparent. So I'm losing the stability of my life one by one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then my sister was diagnosed with um, terminal cancer. Um, I had a brother who was an alcoholic who I hung out with a lot. I worked for him and we drank together a lot. I could see his path was a lot darker than mine. And so... um, I don't know exactly his mm-hmm. reasoning, but I saw the way he coped with it, which is what I did. That's how I got through the earlier deaths. Um, and and let me talk about the good point in my life when I realized I did not want to be that for my kids. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So that's, when I got healthy, it was, oh God, I was at a party with my husband's relatives, it was a fancy party at um, aunt and uncle's 50th wedding anniversary at a very successful cousin's house. And I 
brought my portfolio and I was talking to this fashion designer from New York who was his cousin. And I, that's the last thing I remember. That was like two in the afternoon. So the next morning I woke up and I don't know if you guys have ever woke up, but not opened your eyes and just thinking like, oh my God, where am I? And you're thinking back to the day before. And I didn't want to open my eyes and see where I was because I knew I was at this party at two in the afternoon talking to this very successful designer. And um, I didn't know from two o'clock when. So I opened my eyes and I was at my in-law's house and there was a little puke bucket next to me, which was clean. But I just thought, I can't do this anymore. So, um I walked out of that room and my mother-in-law said, so how are you feeling today? And I was so embarrassed. And I just knew that I couldn't do that to my kids. I did not want to put them through the embarrassment of having the mom. So I knew that day was it for me. And um, I really made a change. Yeah, I quit drinking that day. I, I said, if I mean, we had to go pick up our kids at a neighbor's house who are just squeaky clean, wonderful, salt of the earth people. And I felt sick and pathetic. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't ever want to feel that way for my children again. And they were five and three or two at the time, three and six. And um, I asked God that day, I remember standing in my bedroom in front of a dresser with a Michelob in my hand. And I said, I'm going to drink this beer just to get through this toxic feeling and Please, God, I need help. I cannot do this. I will never drink again. And I never did. Mm. So um, that was when I was 35. And since then, I lost my brother. I lost my sister. I mean, another brother. So I lost four siblings now. But um, for... Three and a half years ago, my husband and I, you know, we went through some rocky road at that time where I was just, like I said, it wasn't, I don't think a problem for him, but it was for me and I wasn't being honest with myself. So you can't be honest in a relationship when you're thinking and spending all that time um, struggling with yourself. And it was amazing when I started working on myself, he wasn't a problem at all anymore. And we came to be best friends again. And so we really were best friends, but for not even four years ago, we're coming up on four years in June 8th. It'll be four years. We were at kickboxing and he was healthy and fit. And, um, he dropped his water bottle and he was like, Oh, you know, something happened. I stroked out or something. And I said, yeah, that was a hard workout. That was a really kick-ass workout. And um, you guys will appreciate, he went, he was a, a college football player, he was a state wrestler, he was, uh, you know, four-sport athlete, mm-hmm. captain of everything mm-hmm. in high school. He was a big jock, and um, he would laugh and say, he'd walk past the guys working out in the weights and say, why are they out there standing around those that equipment when they could be in here having a, a wrestling workout? So doing kickboxing or, you know, like a fit for life kind of thing. But anyway, I said, yeah, that was a tough workout. And on the way to the car, I could see he was sensing, I sensed that something else was really wrong because he dropped the keys. Um, And that was June 8th in 2017. And he had tingly fingers and a tingly eyelid and lip. 
And in July, they had an MRI done and told him he had glioblastoma, which is brain cancer. And there is no cure for brain cancer of that sort. It's terminal um, quickly. So he had uh, 12 to 14 months with treatment or two to four months without treatment. And um, most people that I've ever heard about have one tumor, maybe a couple, and he had nine. So um, that was the same time John McCain was diagnosed with the same cancer. John McCain had one tumor, and he lived 13 months with treatment, with the best treatment in the world. Right. So my husband made the brave, um, the brave decision to not do treatment. He had surgery, so he had a huge scar. They did the surgery. They took it out. That was how they found out he had this form. And um, his lifestyle, this is a long answer, Monty, to how, um, you know, when he was younger, he had the attitude, you know, I would call it kick the dog, kind of. Come in the house, you know, like this. He was kind of crabby when we were first married. This is wrong, blah, 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 blah. This is wrong. This is a problem. This isn't clean. This is whatever. He noticed the flaws. And because I had been through the deaths in my family, I noticed um, at one point I, I started when I was younger, before I quit drinking, I would plan on the worst happening because I felt like, well, I'm not going to be disappointed. So if I just expect people are going to die, I'm not going to be disappointed when they do. Um, and I, I learned along the way that was not healthy. And so I turned that around. So positive thinking started, um, in my life and started with him. And so by the time he was diagnosed, he also lived in a very, very positive way. And when he got cancer, it was just, he never felt sorry for himself. So he would notice like this food is so good. And I'm thinking, why don't we live this way forever? Why are we just shoving food down our faces? Why are we living in this rat race? Why are we doing all these things that are so unhealthy to ourselves when we can live in a very sweet and mindful way by just slowing down and paying attention to what we're doing, paying attention to relationships, paying attention to our children, people we love, and um, noticing all the goodness instead of the flaws in life. And so um, he was just a beautiful example of that in his death. And I did a TED Talk about that. And I did a um, Herring Bridge, which I'm going to turn into a book because actually so many people have asked and people still visit that Herring Bridge because I made it his and our story into a, you know, what if we did these things to improve our lives instead of, hiding and fighting. Um, so I think that, does that answer, Monty, your question, kind of how I got through that grief? It really, really does. Um, and I really, we really appreciate the the long answer because I think, I think it deserved that. I think um, that question needed that long of an answer because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, we haven't experienced what you have experienced. So that was a wonderful answer. That was because I, I, I can only imagine. And, and you're so right. You know, what you stated right there towards the end where it's when we get news like that, then we want to start appreciating life um, when, when we, when we can do it beforehand. And, and, I, and I'm, 
I'm speaking to myself on that. Um, and and you you just really got me thinking because we all are going to experience that. We're going to lose our loved ones. It's inevitable. Everyone. It's one thing that we're all doing. My husband would tell people, you know, they'd come to visit him when he was sick and he'd say, none of us are getting out of here alive. And it's so true. And our culture is terrible about death. Other cultures. I did a lot of work over the years when I realized, too, that part of my healing um, with my addictive personality, I needed to address that grief from when I was young. And I started doing um, retreats and rituals. I did a lot of grief work and learning about it. And I learned that indigenous um, African, I did African grieving rituals. I did Native American rituals and learned about indigenous cultures. I learned about um, Japanese, you know, with death and um, Indian with death. Just so many different things that we don't address. And so now I think about my coping mechanisms the day after his death, which is another book I have to write, or the day after his funeral, I realized, acknowledge it, express it, and let it go. This is my little formula, um, which just came to me. Um, acknowledge it, express it, and let it go. And it was part of what I did in this African ritual one day where we, we walked around, we painted our faces black, and then we went in with um, white paint. And it, this was a many-hour ritual, and they had drumming, And we would go to each person in the circle. There were 40 women. And we would take this white paint and and smudge one little mark on their face. And we would say, you would look into their eyes and you would say, I acknowledge your pain. I, I acknowledge your pain. I pray for your healing. And I bless you to move on. Mm. So it was the past. I honor your pain. I pray for your healing, which was the present. And I bless you to move on, which was the future. So, and I'm learning now that some of these are kind of Buddhist um, philosophies too. And letting go, impermanence, life is impermanent. We're all going to die, which you mentioned. But um, by the time, in that circle, by the time we had, at first you're kind of laughing. We all come in with this paint on. We look ridiculous. We feel silly. But after a while, like when you smudge somebody with this, and said that to them and look in their eyes. Then you went to the next person. And after you were smudged, you got in line to do it. So eventually we went around that whole circle. And we were blessed by 40 women and we blessed mm-hmm. 40 women. And we went from the darkness to the light. And you cannot believe the healing. And those are the kind of things, you know, I felt like we let go of so much that day. So much. And we're not in a culture, especially for women, that I don't know about men, but women are very hard on each other. And I think some of the mommy drinking and um, especially during the pandemic, there's a huge prevalence of perfection. Having to be perfect, having your kids do everything perfectly, um, looking perfect, uh, holding all your shit together and just, you know, the doctor told me balancing 18 plates on sticks. We can't do it. Mm. And, and this year during the pandemic, I know people, the drinking, um, I, I read in the New York times recently, just about the number of women that are struggling that never did before that may have just had a glass of wine who are now drinking a bottle of wine. I mean, I can only imagine, uh, well, the stay-at-home orders that were put into place last year, 
Mm-hmm. Just how disruptive that was to to the households of then okay childcare okay then how much is childcare yeah. oh wait that's a, that's a, an entirely new mortgage payment <laughs> or it's and then oh wait <laughs> well like our culture you're talking about our culture our culture we put a lot of identity into our working selves like that's mm-hmm. how we self identify a lot so now that's taken right. away from you you can't go into the office you lost your identity what are you gonna do <laughs> you know come home you're not equipped to be a teacher your equipment is not set to be a teacher you're trying to function in a job which has changed um online i feel for people math they changed math how do you teach it i don't know (laughs) it's not math anymore (laughs) everything Uh, and then there's teachers who are moms who are teaching classrooms from home and teaching their kids while their husband's in the other room and uh you know, it's no wonder. And then I think too, just being at home around your kids all the time. We love our kids, but that kid, that kids get annoying. Right. <laughs> That's just a fact. <laughs> so, so that just many many stressors. So you're right. Um, we received uh, some data from the Department of Human uh, Health, excuse me, Department of Health Services, and yeah, the data does show um, that oh. drinking has significant increased in the state of Wisconsin um, from the beginning of last year to, I think the report was to March of this year. Merchants have reported as well that they're selling way more than they yeah. had previously, um, which makes sense. You're at home. You're working from home and stuff. And so you're right. You're right. And I think it's very important too that you're sharing this information because what you stated about the retreat that you had, uh, the, the thing that you did with the 40 women, there's a lot of power in connecting with people. Yes, we need to. And that, you know, um, in 2016, and I feel God prepares us for certain things in our lives. In 2016, I had an episode of very, very bad anxiety um, that happened at the beginning of the year and lasted for four months, debilitating anxiety. And I, I wasn't especially known to have anxiety but um, it hit me very, very hard. And I remember one day coming out of my bedroom just thinking, if this was depression, I wonder if this would be a day you would just say, I can't live with this anymore. Mm. Um, but drinking wasn't, this is the thing I'm saying too, to get through the death of all these people. And my husband, he hadn't died at that point or one of my sisters. But um, to get through all those deaths, to get through the pandemic, to get through... Jeez everything right i needed to learn coping mechanisms you need to learn to let go and so then when i had this anxiety again it's like i know i could drink a glass of wine and chill how it just gives you that calm Mm -hmm. and that wasn't an option and so i remember who i consider an angel now one day came up to me i didn't know her at the time really and she said to my husband how are you doing right after his mom's death And then she said, how are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm really struggling with anxiety. And she said, "Um, go home and play your native flute. And she said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I am. And I don't know how she knew I played the Native American flute. And I'm thinking at this point, I would do anything for this to stop. So I went home and um, went down the basement because it was kind of embarrassing. My family was here and I just played. And for the first time... My thoughts were not running rampant, 
and my breathing was calm. I realized I had to take a nice deep breath to play. And um, I wasn't shallow breathing like you do with anxiety. And so I started saying to more people when they would say, how are you doing? And I would say, you know, I'm really struggling with anxiety. And more people said, you know, I never had that, but I've struggled with depression. Or um, they would share their story. And I would walk away from that meeting or that, you know, quick encounter with somebody at the Y thinking I felt lightened by sharing that burden. And they also were given the permission to be less than perfect. People who looked perfect and acted perfect and were living. And for the first time, they may have talked openly about a depression or an anxiety or a mental health situation. And one day my husband said to me, aren't you embarrassed to tell people that? And I said, you know what? No, because honestly, I feel it's lightening. It's helping me heal. And it's like going around that circle with those women and sharing. I think the fine line is you don't want to share in a way that you're putting your burden on someone else. And you also don't want to do it for sympathy or for your ego. So I think over the years, I've really learned to discover when things are from ego. And um, when I'm looking for affection or attention, and you don't do it for any of that, you simply do it soulfully to share your story. And then it diminishes some of the um, energy that's associated with that without burdening anyone. Um, or yeah, because have you guys ever read the, um, Celestine prophecy? No, I have not. It's a really great psychology kind of book, but it's written as a, um, fiction kind of story. And they talk about encounters with people in there. And it really made an impact on me for a a fiction kind of thing. And it was saying any interaction you have with someone, you're either going to walk away feeling more powerful or less powerful. And so I became really conscious of that. Um, True. You know, think yeah. about it. From now on, when you talk to someone in the next True. few days, walk away and say, did I feel like I won or did I feel like they won? Which makes you want to continue that back and forth. You know, it's kind of a pissing match. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom always would say, leave the campsite better than when you got there. Mm-hmm. And I learned that I want to leave every interaction with somebody where they feel better having talked to me or seen me or visited me. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's on a phone call and you know, you're on a phone call with some people that are just toxic. You can't wait to hang up. I want people to get off the phone with me or from seeing me and say, you know, I feel better having visited with her. But again, I don't want it to be an ego thing. So I'm not doing it for that reason. I also don't want to feel like I'm sharing a burden that people feel like, oh, poor girl. And um, so that's my thing now is it's hard to say. I lost seven immediate family members, but I want to share their story. But I don't want your sympathy, mm. if that makes sense. Because people are so uncomfortable with death that they automatically, you know, might want to clam up because they don't know what to say or feel really sorry for me. And I don't want them to feel sorry for me. I want them to be able to feel comfortable sharing about death, about drinking, about anxiety, because I feel like what you guys are doing this for is to take the stigma away from addiction. Um, The more we share it, 
you know, why does AA have to be anonymous? Because people step into the bar to get rid of their, their, you know, burdens without caring, but they don't want to step into an AA meeting because someone might see them there. And they don't realize that the AA meeting has the most healthy people that you would want to be around because these are people dealing with their shit, right? It's we're the least judgmental people, uh, (laughs) you know, because like your story earlier, like we're not judging. We're not judging that because I think that uh, I've been there for sure. So, um, you know, and yeah, that's a really good point. What what you said about giving people people permission to be less than perfect because you're showing that you're also not perfect like that really hit me in the heart like really hit me um that's such an amazing way of putting it and your perspective is just it's it's awesome um i really appreciate it i really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your story RJ, it really falls in line with which, what you talked about, oh man, a while back, maybe 20, 25 episodes ago, about the uh, gatekeeping. So how this is all pairing together in my head is, you know, Gigi, you stated just about how it's this allowing for people to be themselves. Like there's no judgment. You're giving them that permission. And I think there's so much power in that because we see it in the recovery community where it's this gatekeeping. It's, oh, wait, you... You know, you the split AA, and then you have NA. It, it's 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 right there. When I I understand it, there's different conversations. People need to hear different things, of course, depending on what they were suffering from. But in a nutshell, we're all the same. We all suffer from an addiction, and you will come across folks who don't want to speak or be around folks who were part of NA. If it wasn't just alcohol, they they there's this gatekeeping that we always spoke about, and and judging folks from what they used. Because it wasn't what you I used, and and so I guess what I'm getting at is again allowing for somebody to tearing down that stigma immediately, and allowing for some giving them that permission to be vulnerable is so empowering. It really is so, and it's mutually mutually empowering. Yeah, I remember. I think it was at an AA meeting, and I just went for a year. I mean, when I knew I had to quit drinking, I had a friend that mentioned that he didn't, and he said, "I know how you can quit." and um, I went for about a year, just once a week. So I wasn't really serious about that program, but I don't have anything to, you know, some people say it doesn't, it's whatever. I don't want to judge that. I really liked it, but I didn't feel like I needed to continue to go. But, um, I think it was at an AA meeting. The first time I heard that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience And when you look at it that way, I don't know how you can even, um, you know, consider anything, how we could treat people any less when you consider that we are all spiritual beings. We are all the souls inside in our shells don't matter. Uh, It doesn't matter where you're born, what your border is, what your color is, what your anything matters. We are all spirits and souls that need to acknowledge and, um, help each other get through life. You know, I think we're here to, you know, can I say one more thing, RJ? I was thinking when talking earlier about perfectionism kind of thing, I had a counselor years ago tell me that my, um, she did testing and said, my thing was hypercriticalness and unrelenting standards. And I thought, I'm the wild child. I'll do anything. I'm not, you know, that's just not me. 
And then I had to stop and say, okay, she's telling me, she's trained, and she's telling me this is my thing. I need to listen. And she told me then that um, it became very obvious when I really started looking at myself and just how I carried myself and what I expected from myself. She said that other people are uncomfortable, and I didn't realize that. She said, if you hold yourself and you dress in a certain way and you hold yourself to certain standards personally, and when you're drinking or you have an addiction, let's say you are going to try much harder to be the perfect husband or wife or, you know what I mean? You're going to be the super dad. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, when they quit drinking, their spouse is like, what happened to the dad that would get up and do all these things because you felt guilty the night before? You know what I mean? So you get used to being perfect in these other ways to make up for your drinking. Right. But um, when I had, she said, don't, don't aim to be perfect anymore, except in things you have to. So for me, I wanted to be a really good mom, but I did not want to make my kids feel they needed to be perfect. And I wanted to be um, really good at my job. So I need to give a hundred and, she said, give 100% there and give 75% for everything else. And um, she said, no one else will notice. So, you know, it was able to, like, I don't have to have makeup on to go to Target. This past year with the pandemic, I think a lot of us have been forced to let go of some of these things. And I think it's kind of crazy that we're going to rush back to working too many hours and having too many engagements to go to and, you know, a million things for our kids to do when we really could, we've given this perfect break to stop and let go of some of these things. And I don't know that we're going to do it if we're going to go right back. Yeah. Unfortunately, America capitalism is a churning system. And uh, I I hear what you're saying, but, but yeah, unfortunately I think we're, as a society, we're just going to get back to it. We're going to stress ourselves out. We're going to work X amount of hours over top of our, the hours that we need to be working. Yeah, it's, it's you know, a lot that we talk about is I think a lot came to light last year. Um, you know, I, the way that I think about it is, you know, we talk about the bubble burst back in 2008, right? Well, I think what we're experiencing right now is by having the healthcare system that we have, which we which it's it's very expensive to get to get mental health care <laughs> right anything <laughs> very very expensive I have, um, no i won't we're, we're almost kind of gross. We're, we're almost experiencing a like a mental health crisis we are first. it's 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 coming oh, to a point sure we are the the it's too expensive and folks can't afford it and then people need the treatment that they need and so yeah, I hope that people took the time to reset, and and but unfortunately, I don't think America's going to allow that. You know, we got to work. <laughs> I heard the other day it's eighty percent of people, eighty percent of people in our country have struggled with mental health during this last year. So, with the stigma of mental health, how do you say to someone, "I'm hurting"? You know, how do you eighty percent? Keep holding those 18. When I first uh, um, addressed my anxiety with a doctor, I was a nurse practitioner, and she said, you're you're balancing 18 plates on sticks, and how long do you think you can do that? And I think a lot of moms do that. I can't speak for dads because I'm not a dad, but I'm sure there are pressures dads have and men have 
you know, that people do. And um, I think we need to be so much gentler with everyone because everyone, especially this past year, every single person in the world has been affected by the pandemic. And I think um, we need to not say, well, you think you had it bad, you know, each other with, well, this is what I had to do. Right. Right. Yeah. But then also listen to people when they do say that, um, you know, it was tough being here alone for this past year. My kids are on out of the state. But um, while I, I don't want to say that for sympathy, I do like to say it for understanding. Yeah. And I love other people to share their stories, too, because I feel like we're so much better when we do okay. so much better. So everybody has has a story like, that we've noticed. Everybody yes. has something that you can connect with. It's just finding that connection. Yes, and it so, makes every person valid. Absolutely, it does. it does. It does. So, so who is, so who is Gigi? So who is Gretchen? <laughs> Oh, a friend sent me something years ago that said, I am, this is uh, adapted from a quote. I am not unpopular. I am more alive than most. The wild electric eel swimming in a pond of goldfish. So I am an electric eel. Definitely. um, We all are in our own ways, but I'm not, I'm not even, sometimes I'm afraid to even share that because I don't want people to feel like, the electric eel is special in a pond of goldfish. It's who I am, though. I'm an electric eel swimming in a pond of goldfish. That's how I feel, and I feel like so many people feel the same thing. But um, we need to have the permission to be ourselves and, and do it. So I have tried. I've been trying to teach my kids. This is one more funny thing about that drinking. I felt like part of when I was young, why we would drink was to be wild and free and do the crazy, stupid stuff you do. And so when my kids were little, I had this theory that maybe if I taught them to be ridiculously silly and stupid, then when they're 16, they won't have to do the drinking. (laughs) So I would let them do, I would encourage them to do stupid stuff. So one night when one of my sons was little, he wanted to be a priest. So he had all these priest vestments, like one for each season. So when his friends were over one night, when they're like 10 years old, they all dressed up in priest costumes and I drove them around. And let them run into places. They'd run into Target, like dressed like a priest. And they would come out dying laughing. And I'm just sitting in the car laughing. Like they go into a hotel and fall down in the lobby. And they'd come out, ah, you know, I'm laughing, laughing. So then it got to be the end of the night. And we stopped at the grocery store to, you know, buy some chips and some soda and stuff for their sleepover. And all of a sudden, we see one of their moms drive up. <laughs> and my first, my first feeling was like, when you're 16 and you're in the car and you're drinking, you're like, oh, God, there's this you know, We're like, oh, how am I going to explain this, you know? So, um, but then you want to act to your kids like it's normal. So we don't want to act like this is ridiculous because I'm trying to teach them it's okay and normal to act crazy yeah. without drinking. So yeah, we went in the grocery store and I explained to her and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good 
And that was the last day my kid hung out with that kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they were actually, he was in his wedding last yeah. year. I mean, they're that's pretty silly. Cool. But that's the electric eel swimming in a pond of goldfish. I, but I can't, I can't not be me because um, I, I think my every report card in my life said, Gigi is a talker. And I tried to um, quiet that and squelch that. I realized later that social anxiety when I didn't want to be out is because I talk. Obviously, I talk. And I tried to not be that one. I didn't want to come home from everything and think, oh, why did I say that? Mm. Um, And now I just accept there are bubbling springs that come out of the ground in some places. And that's what I do. And I can put a cap on it. And cap that off. That's not healthy. That's going to squirt out in some other direction. And I think a lot of what we deal with is that way. So I know I just need to bubble up. And I'm a talker. And that's just the way it is. And if I try not to be, that's when I'm going to find myself in a problem with things. So Nothing wrong with being a talker nowadays. I mean, I think it's especially, look on the bright side of things. You know, my generation, we don't really like talking to people anymore. It's just texting. So. <laughs> you know, and I try and find the good in that. Like, I try to find the good in everything. Um, you know, we're learning. We are communicating. There's connections with people. Monte, I wouldn't be connected with you. And, you know, RJ, I know probably more of your story that you're a lineman. My, father, my father-in-law <laughs> climbed the poles. But I wouldn't know that stuff without the Internet. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So, connections with people. I have met people ever face-to-face that we share soulful stories. So it's good and bad. You know, I... Well, I mean, it just reminds me when people say that of that picture of people on the bus from, like, the 1940s or 50s. It's probably the 50s or 60s. Every single person has a newspaper out in front of their face, like a big newspaper. And they're like, yes, because we all used to just sit and talk with each other. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and I'm the kind of person I am a little bit of an introvert where if I go outside and I see you, I'll say hi, but I kind of don't want to I don't want to bother you. So like I you know, I'll be pleasant and say hi and then kind of go do my thing. But if you stop and talk to me, that that makes me feel like you're giving me permission to talk to you. So then, okay, I'll talk to you, but I don't want to bother you. So that's kind of like my introvert kind of thing is I don't want to bother people. But where did that feeling come from? That's a good question. I... <laughs> that's worth exploring. Yeah, that's worth. I don't. I don't know where it came from. I just. I I don't know. That's a good question. That's a really good question. I think back to my childhood, and it would be like the most prevalent feeling I have of my childhood. Don't you ever shut up. That was what I think was said to me more than anything. And I learned that talking, I mean, don't you ever shut up? And that's probably why I'm self-conscious about it, too. You know, that sometime in your life, someone probably just was like, I, you know, enough, I can't, I don't want to. Or your, your ideas, you go to share with someone and they shut you down. And so you learn it's not okay. Well, here you broken. But we do that to other people when we're broken. So the more we heal the better we can treat other people, I think. Hey, I mean, that's wonderful stuff. I mean, I, I think this was an important share 
because I find it again, I, it's very empowering. Just what you were sharing about giving people permission. It, it, it's it's not as it's, it's not as if you are the gatekeeper of oh and I'm not going to give you that permission or but just by you presenting yourself in a certain way allows for folks to be more vulnerable and that's that's literally the foundation. That's of why podcast. I wear sweatpants everywhere. If you can see, I'm still in my uh, pajamas at the bottom. <laughs> my leggings <laughs> are. But this was awesome. This was awesome, Gretchen. Gigi, uh, you are a trooper. I'll tell you that. You are very resilient. and you know. It's work. And I just want to, you know, on, a, on that note, I just want to say every day people need to make a plan. I made a plan for winter. I look for the positive. At the end of each day, I go out and look for beauty. I look for beauty all the time. I look out my window and see how beautiful and green it is on a rainy day. People complain, it's raining again. But each day I go out and look for beauty and I snap pictures and share them. But um, that's my thing. There is so much beauty and you cannot be grateful and not at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if yeah. you're looking to live in gratitude and joy and you look for that and you expect that, you're going to get it and you're going to find it in others. If you expect people to be bitchy, they're going to be bitchy. If you expect them to be kind, they're going to be kind. Hmm. And we have to look for that. So I look for beauty each day. And so life is pretty beautiful, no matter, regardless of what I've gone through. My goodness. I mean, they, the, you, you put a lot of things in perspective for folks and including myself, because just complaining about the little stuff. We have a choice every day. Yeah, what you focus on longest will become strongest, good or bad. And I think that's a great, a great quote to end on right there. <laughs> if people wow. would like to get in touch with you, Gigi, how can they do that? Um, gosh, I, I pigeon mean, post. pigeon post. <laughs> that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> we have a website from work. I'm just thinking, um, how about Gigi Becker at new.rr.com? That's an email address I have. Okay. All right. We'll put that on, we'll put that on our, uh, on the text for the episode. I have the TED talk. If you want to see that is, um, TEDx Oshkosh. If you just Google Gretchen Herman with two R's and two N's and, um, the talk was called make it a beautiful day. Mm. All about choices. Um, so yeah, if you Google that on Ted, or just Google the name and make it a beautiful day. Yeah, can you, <laughs> share, that, can you share that quote again? <laughs> that was an awesome. What quote. you the, what you focus on longest? Yes, that one. Yes, that yeah, one. Yeah. What you focus on longest becomes strongest, good or bad. Mm. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Th- thank you <laughs> so much for coming on. Um, your perspectives are incredible. Thank you for what you shared about my perfectionism, because I think that thinking about it, that was a lot of, a lot of truth to it. A lot of truth. And, uh, you know, I love that you have explored many different cultures and this, thank you for sharing your story just, uh, and giving us permission to be less than perfect. 
Yeah, and now I'll be sharing this with people and they're going to see more of my imperfection. Imperfectly, perfectly imperfect. Mm, there it is. That's the best there way to put is. it. So. Yeah. <laughs> you are awesome. You're awesome. You're wonderful. And you most definitely are an electric eel. And we would love to have you back at some point. I think, I think the chat absolutely loves you. They're asking for an encore already. Um, oh, gosh. Yes. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, everybody, you can find us at Untapped Keg on all social media. Uh, Untapped Keg at gmail.com. Where can they find you, Mons? Yes, you guys can find me at MonteBall28 on Twitter. And on Instagram, Monte Ball. Um, obviously, <clears throat> as RJ stated, our untapped keg pages as well. Send us topics, questions. Uh, maybe send us some guests you'd like to see. Um, and uh, we really appreciate Even you guys. Even if it's yourself. In. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <clears throat> and, and Gigi, we really, really appreciate you and your time. Thank you. you. For lending your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. you. So, and- go ahead. Go ahead, Gigi. I was just saying, and you, I appreciate your sharing your story and helping make this a more approachable topic for people. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. It'll help. Um, if you light one candle, you did your job. <laughs> awesome. I, the quotes are amazing and I love it. And that is, <laughs> that's the way to appreciate it. And um, thank you so much. Let's have a good week, everybody. Let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today. Because we will be. And... Let's go from there. Thank you, everybody. You have a great week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.